Good day and welcome to Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today I'm joined by the infamous Darvi Root from the Efficient Group. Um, I wasn't sure if I was excited or nervous about this, but um, I'm very honoured um, to have Darvi here with us today. I think we're going to open up and talk obviously about the economy, we're going to talk about interest rates, but I thought it was good to talk to Darvi about Darvi as well and tap into what got him to where he is. So before we do that, welcome Darvi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you very much for the invite. Uh, I must tell you, I'm a little bit nervous, but uh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're nervous for. How's it going? How are you enjoying the lockdown? I must tell you, I I actually enjoy it quite a lot. Uh, The Mm. only problem is, is that I am really, really, really busy. Uh, I've never been this busy. But what I've noticed is that I'm in, I'm in contact with my people all the time. We have, we have meetings and everybody all of a sudden is an expert on Zoom or on Teams or these different platforms that are available. And what I've noticed is that some of my people are really getting, they're getting lonely. I think I start picking up uh, people really getting, you know, really wanting to get back to to other people and start talking to other people face to face. Zoom and all these things are all good and well, uh, mm-hmm. but but we are really working very hard. And I guess people, I mean, they don't have much to do, so let's go back and work again. So people are really working hard. So that's something that we have to be. On the one hand, on the other hand, I know many people has got nothing to do in the rest of the economy. But but with me, I think I'm I'm doing fine. I'm doing well. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, and and I know that um, even for us, we've got. People also all over the place. But um, I, I think the challenge is really just trying to understand our people, right? Like we've got all these people doing great stuff who have helped our organizations, but um, each of us is going through this in a different way. And it's almost trying to first understand their challenges before you can almost really move forward with the work stuff, I think. Um, so I've also been reaching out to my team the last couple of weeks and really just trying to see how we can support and understand their different environments and situations. I think women have never been more important than they are right now. Yeah, and as an economist, uh, what I'm was, of course, the first thing, these sort of things sort of happen kind of sudden. Um, my daughter is a geneticist, and we've been talking about uh, the possibility of some, some sort of pandemic and we were we actually long overdue uh, to to see something like this. This I mean, it, it happens quite frequently in history. But as an economist, I was trying to find another time period when we experienced something sm- similar. Because everybody's all of a sudden asking me, so what's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to economic growth and all that? And I, the answer is, I just don't know because I need something to compare it to, and there's nothing to compare it to. So this is really something. But that was my first experience. A kind of excitement because there's something going on, uh, new exciting developments in the economy and in politics and all of that, but also kind of a, 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 a lot of uncertainty because there's nothing I could, could compare it to. And if somebody started asking me a question, I simply didn't know what the answers were. But gradually, I think we start getting a picture of what the impact of this is going to be on, on human lives and on the economy. It's weird, eh? I think the the rules are being reset. It's interesting that you get asked questions. I think we all are 
asking lots of questions. But I was just wondering, I mean, your wife's a, a veterinarian, your son's a lawyer, yeah. your daughter's a, a geneticist, and you're an economist. What do you talk about at dinner? <laughs> and we've we've got twins. One, <laughs> we've got twins. So, the twins. Yeah, and my most important job is that I'm a grade one teacher now as well. And they don't oh, they yes. don't think I, they, they don't think I'm a very good grade one teacher. But what do we talk about? You know, my wife is Russian, so um, we speak English to one another. The kids, their first language is Russian, but they speak Afrikaans to me, and I speak, uh, yeah, well, they, my wife and the kids, they speak Russian to one another, so they gossip about me all the time, and whenever I try to speak Russian, they only laugh at me. Um, so, but we talk about everything, and I guess the interesting, what really, the interesting part about the backgrounds of myself and my wife is that she, she grew up in Soviet Union, and, and that's one of my pet interests, and that is, that is communism, and I've studied communism, and I've gone to Russia, to study communism and to do to make uh, TV programs and so on about about how Russians live, and I know Russians quite well, and uh, and they've got a certain mentality coming from a specific ideological background, and many of them still long for communism. So I guess we speak a lot about our childhood and how she experienced certain things when she was little, and how I experienced that, and the, the differences and the similarities. When I talk to the kids, the small ones, they only want to talk to me when I was little and they want to jump, get me to jump trampoline with them and to do all sort of fun stuff and play Monster Monster. That's a game that we, we play a lot. With my son, well, I guess we talk normal stuff. Uh, girls and son, he's in that age now. And uh, with my daughter, I guess we speak um, mostly scientific things. Uh, my daughter, I'm, she's my, I'm our greatest fan. She's just absolutely amazing. She did, a, she completed a PhD in, in genetics about a year or so ago, and uh, two months ago she became a mother. So I'm a grandfather officially now as well. Oh, congratulations! I haven't got there yet, but I'm sure it's not long away. But I'm yeah. wondering, did you choose a Russian wife because you read the book Millionaire Next Door and you realised that the most <laughs> economically active group in the states were Russians? It, was it that? Uh, well, in fact, uh, usually what you do find if you go to countries like, for example, the U.S., but you find it in many other countries in the world as well, is that immigrants are economically very, very active. And the interesting thing about Russians, they, they don't trust anybody, but they are quite successful in many countries in the world, including in the United States. But And sometimes they are usually associated with some sort of, sort of scaling kind of business. Uh, often you, you think of Russians as the oligarchs and smugglers and not always the case of course but economically I think the Russians are really really uh, entrepreneurial and I've been like I've said I've been to Russia many times and looking at the way that the Russians are doing business there and what they did to survive during the Soviet times and how they got out of the economic troubles after that they're still in economic difficulty uh, but the Russians are a bunch of entrepreneurs don't think that communism necessarily took that away I think I believe people naturally are entrepreneurs. All you need to do is to create the environment. You will be amazed what people can can do. Did you read that book, The Millionaire Next Door? Have you read it? No, I did. No, I did not. Just read it because I think they, they researched over 30 years the pe wealthiest people in America. And what they actually found was um, the most productive entrepreneurs who came from nothing in America. Oh. Oh, the Russians. That's and second was the Scottish. 
Um, and they were saying that the English had been there for many years and, and in many ways as immigrants had the best uphand, but they, they weren't um, doing as well. I, I so it's interesting. I won't, be, yeah, I won't be surprised if you go back 100 years or so that the, the, the Irish may be one of those rather successful groups. Mm. Um, maybe, I don't know. The reason why I say so is because the, the, the Irish were quite discriminated against at one, at one stage in the U.S. So I won't be surprised if there was a time when, when the Irish also went through a period of, of, uh, of this boost or this spurt of entrepreneurship. My wife's actually half Chinese, so how's that for funny? You've got Russian, I've got Chinese. But um, we, we, well, I was wondering, because I know that I do triathlons, and we were talking a little bit earlier, and I see you've done a couple, and you do a couple of marathons. And I was wondering, is it to stay fit or get out of the house, or a little bit of both? <laughs> it, it is really, you know, if you, if, you, if you train for a triathlon, or even if you train for a, a major race, like, for example, the Comrades, um, it takes a lot of time, as you know. You know, sometimes you have to, if you get closer and closer to, say, the, up to a month or so, so before the race or before a triathlon, you can do as much as four hours a day training. Uh, in prepa- getting prepared for this. And it's, it's really, you know, it's not good if you have a family because you spend a lot of time outside training. Uh, and that's not the reason why I like to train, to stay away from, and in fact, the times that I do train is usually in the mornings and it happens quite a lot when I go out and come back, they're still asleep. So they don't, they, they don't even notice that I've gone. Um, uh, but, but I try to stay fit. I think that's part of the reason why I do that. And also because I do a lot of work while I'm training. I write quite a lot, and uh, I write most of my articles while I am riding my bike, or mostly while I'm running. So I, I the whole the, running what for people me is don't, yeah. What people don't what people don't understand is that writing an article is not about sitting down and start writing. Writing an article is about thinking about it for many days or weeks or even months uh, over a long period of time, and then. The whole thing falls together in your head and you sit down and then you put it on paper. It's not a half an hour or an hour that you're writing it on the computer that's taking your time. It's the time before that. So I think that my running time especially is quite productive in terms of getting my thoughts uh, together, especially when, when putting something, to, like writing an article. That's, that's when I do the preparation for that. I mean, you've got such an interesting background. I mean, you used to work for the Reserve Bank as an economist. Um, member of BUSA. So, you know, I, I asked you earlier, do you, do you actually sleep? Because you, you're doing the triathlons, you've got a family, you're running a business, you're writing books, you're on TV. How do you fit all this in? Um, well, a lot of this lo- uh, overlap of a lot of these things, like, for example, I do present a TV program. Uh, I'll write articles and I do asset management and I've got a business and all that. But it's mostly to do with, with economics or with business or business-related stuff. Uh, so there's a, I mean, I, I write an article, for example, for the newspapers, but then I talk about that on a TV program and I present that at my investment committee at the company as well. So there's a lot of overlap. Uh, but I am very busy uh, and, and I've got a, an amazing team that support me uh, mm-hmm. and I've got people helping me with things like, for example, my, uh, my diary, managing my diary for me. I'm not allowed to put anything in my diary. They say whenever I <laughs> put anything, and I understand that because whenever I put something in my diary, it's always a mess. I need people to, to assist. But I've got an amazing team. And I think after a while, one can get, 
I've got this funny habit. I get up in the morning, sometimes, especially now with the lockdown, for example, and I, after uh, going for a run or whatever or some exercise, I would go to the kitchen and make a cappuccino for my wife and a cup of coffee for myself. And I unlock the doors and, you know, do the normal stuff. Switch off the lights, switch on the lights, switch on the alarm and that sort of stuff. And I try to see how quickly I can do all of this without running. So they put everything into a certain sequence. What should I do first? Put the, the mug with the milk in the, in the microwave or should they switch on the kettle first? How, how much water should I put into the kettle to be just enough for one mug of coffee and so that it can, I don't waste any electricity and also do not waste any time? What should come first? The oven or, uh, or the, 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 the kettle or uh, putting the coffee in a mug. And that's, I'm trying to figure out the sequence <laughs> of that little thing in the morning that can be the most cost-effective in terms of time. So that, is that I, a stupid I call thing it efficient. Do? Yeah, well, is that a... Anyway, so there's an example. That's how I try to run my... And in the meantime, I want to have some fun as well. <laughs> but is it, is it that... Because I find the same thing. Like my routine and my habits for those sorts of things are almost boring. And is it because we don't want to spend our memory and our thought on those things we want to indulge in other more interesting Mon thoughts about yeah, changing the world? things, yeah. Um, well, th those uninteresting things like putting on your socks in the morning, maybe you can combine it with something else. And this is what I do. I try to bend down and touch my feet without bending my knees when I put on my socks. Because well, by doing that... that <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a, that's a stupid. That's a, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a, that sort of stuff that I <laughs> keep myself. Oh, geez, my, my hamstrings are way too tight for that. Yeah. But um, so, what got you into doing the triathlon? Because uh, you did the what the ultra, or did you do the half one with? In no, I did. The, I did the half one. I, yeah. I've done. I've done two at German, two half ones. Um, yeah. In Durban, and and then I've done nice a, place, done eh? an, It's yeah. It is very nice, and it's not too difficult. The the half uh, uh, Ironman in, in, in Durban. It's nice and flat. This is, the swim is very easy. That's the easiest. The bike is very flat. And the run is also flat on a promenade. So that's very nice. But you still have to make sure that you're fit enough to do that. So it was very nice. I really enjoyed that. I've done two of those. And I've done yeah. a number of funny other things. One thing that I've done that uh, was really... Oh, you asked me why I did it. I did it because I wanted to see if I can do it. Now, let me just answer. Let me just explain this to you. Uh, and maybe yeah. it will. Yeah. I uh, I can remember. I was one day. I was doing some a comment on on the radio station on the financial markets, and I used to drive into this to the studio to uh, for my five minutes of fame on the on a radio program. And one day the presenter got stuck somewhere, and all of a sudden I was the only person, me and the technical person, in the studio. And he said, <clears throat> "Well, I don't have a choice now. I have to present this this radio program." And I was a bit nervous, and I tried it, and it worked because I've been I've been sitting next to this guy for for a long time, so it worked quite well. And the next thing is they asked me to do to present that radio program. But what I wanted to tell you actually, one day I got a call wow. from a from a TV station, and a, and uh, the guy asked me if I would like to present a TV program. And I said, of course. I said immediately. I said yes. I always get very angry at myself when I say yes to everything. And I can remember the first day, and I don't know if you know what this, this TV studio looks like, but there's, it's a big room, and there, there's a 
there's a there's a the, the control room behind that behind the a glass and that's a lot of people sitting everywhere the director and a producer and the floor manager and a cameraman and the voice people and the makeup artists and yes there's so many people i don't know what everybody's doing and i can remember going in that day it was alive it was alive i have been interviewed before that but this is the first time i was doing i was presenting myself and I was going to remember, we went through the whole program, the whole thing, and I was sitting in front of this camera, quite confused and bewildered, but more or less knew what I was supposed to be doing. And then the red light was going on. Uh, that's the, on, in, in, uh, the red light on top of the door of the, of the studio showing that we're going to go on air soon. And then the, the, the producer started counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. And when you get to 5, it's the floor manager. And then the, the producer stops counting. It's a floor manager showing five fingers, four fingers, three fingers. And I can tell you, Ralph, I died a thousand deaths then. <laughs> and I was, I was thinking to myself, why on earth? Why did he say yes? I mean, are you completely crazy? And, it, and he showed two fingers, one finger, and then the red light went on, on okay, top so of you the camera. Human. It's going to ask, did you ever get nervous? But obviously you I, do. That, I was, I was, it was absolutely horrible, that last five seconds especially, because I knew when the red light went on, I knew my mother was watching me. Now that, and suddenly, I was very nervous for two or three seconds thereafter, and suddenly it was gone. It was completely gone. And since then I've presented literally hundreds of TV programs, and I don't get nervous whatsoever anymore. TV, uh, radio programs, many of those as well. And, and that's the reason why I did the triathlon. I did the triathlon because mm. I wanted to see if I can do that. And whenever I get the opportunity to speak to, 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 to children, especially, my advice to them is try to do stuff that you can't, that you think you can't do, and you will be surprised how wrong you can be. And that's the reason I had why the same I did it. conversation with kids last night. Same yeah. thing. Try. Try stuff. Try stuff, and you you will surprise yourself. And what you can, and I'm not a good sportsman. Don't make a mistake. Certainly not. Uh, and let me tell you another story. And I once uh, I've been to Russia a few times, and we went to a lake called the Baikal Lake, the most amazing place, the biggest lake on this planet. And um, I read a little bit about the Baikal Lake, and we went back to the Baikal Lake to run a marathon over the Baikal Lake in winter, in the middle of winter. It was nice and warm. At the beginning, only minus 25, and we ran, <laughs> we ran across this frozen lake uh, in, in the northern part of Siberia, and that was such a wow experience. It was you can only all you can see is white and blue. It's just amazing. I'm there right and, now. I can see it. Yeah, it was absolutely astonishing to run over the Baikal Lake. So that was a wow moment for me. Another wow moment is that. I've got national colors in para, and para, uh, para, powered paramotoring, PPG, powered paramotoring. What is and, that? Uh, it's like these guys flying around the mountains with the parachutes, oh. paragliders, but with an engine is on my back. Oh, wow. And, and uh, we did. Are you scared of heights? I'm very scared of heights. <laughs> <laughs> and and, I, and that's, a, that's why I did it, because I'm scared of heights. And. And I can remember now another wow moment. We were flying the world championships and they, the, the wind was very tough. And we were flying over the wall of China. And uh, you have to go into a, like a kloof, fly into this mountain 
mountain big and come out of it again. And I was so, so scared. And on my way out, one of my colleagues was flying into, and he, into this mountain kloof, and he took a picture of, of me. And that was another wow moment, me flying over the Great Wall of China. And I did it because I didn't think I would be able to do it. <laughs> so you didn't just yeah. see the Great Wall of China, you flew over it. I flew over it, yeah, that was amazing. That was really wow. And so you represented your country in that. Have you ever yes. otherwise represented your country? Uh, I guess I represented, so that was in, that is with national colors. Well, not officially, I guess. Well, I've, yeah, I represented South Africa at certain international uh, events, like, for example, I represented South Africa at the World Bank and the IMF meeting. That was, that specific one was in Prague, mm. in the Czech Republic, mm. uh, and, and, and stuff like that. You had to, you know, register with Treasury before you could go, and I did that. But I don't think I was necessarily a representative of South Africa as such, although I was part of the South African team. But I can't think, I re well, I guess I represent South Africa every day because I get the opportunity to speak to international investors and inter international journalists and analysts and so on quite a lot. So I guess all South Africans represent South Africa in a way. Mm. So, I mean, you've lived a full and exciting life. Apart from what you do for your day job, you, you've done some exciting things, which is intriguing, eh? Because sometimes we don't realize there's a whole person behind this, the person who's on TV presenting economic views. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. So, I mean, getting on to the economy, we're in a, well, unusual times. Is that, a, is that an understatement? We are in very deep trouble. Yeah, you know, the thing is with, no, we are very, very deep trouble here. The thing is that people, you know, when, and I actually, I want, I want to blame economics professors for this. Because if you go to university and you study economics, and they tell you when you study economics, they've got definitions for things. Like, for example, economics is the study of markets. And if you ask an economics student or you ask the layperson about economics, they're going to tell you economics is about rents and interest rates and inflation and, and mathematics and models and, you know, things like that. Numbers. That's what people think economics is about. It is not. It is not about numbers. Economics is about people. It's only about people. And the only reason why economists use formulas and, and theories and so on is because we use those as tools so that we can try to use these tools to try to understand people. Because economics is about people and only about people. One example that I always uh, use is that even the decision, all, it, all decisions are always economic decisions. Even the decision of who you want to get married to is also an economic decision. Because think about that. Obviously, <laughs> there's the, true. There's it's, the, it's in that book as well. There, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's the millionaire next door. Choose your, choose your partner wisely. Warren Buffett oh, well, said, I, best, best I, decision I, you can ever make. Oh, I have to go and read that book. But, but the point is, is that obviously there's a the, there's the family farm that you have to consider when you're getting married to somebody. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, a marriage is, is, a, is a transaction. It's an exchange of love. It's a, it's, mm -hmm. it's a very important step. in. It is an economic decision. All decisions are always economic decisions. And that's also part of economics. And, uh, and I really became intrigued. Actually... Economics chose me. I always tell people that was the only subject that I could pass. And in a way, that's true. For some weird <laughs> reason, <laughs> for some weird reason, economics choose, chose me. And I, and the thing that really 
really excites me in economics are funny things. Like, for example, communism. I've officially studied communism. Uh, things like, for example, why is somebody like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, why is he such, an, such, an, um, such a successful leader? Because he is. People absolutely adore him in his country. Why is that so? Yet, North Korea is a dismally poor country, but he's still there. He's revered. Why is that so? Those are the kind of questions that I want to, that I'm intrigued about. But economics is not about numbers. I think it's about people. And if you can, if you understand people, I guess you understand economics as well. We're all economists. Yeah, true. But is it is communism so uh, interesting to you because there's that sense that we're all fair and we're all equal and the state's going to look after you, but in fact, our maybe philosophies don't quite work out into real life. Is, it, is that what it is? Because... We all want to be fair and equitable, but in fact, the rules of life doesn't, of nature. Is it life, nature, you know, habitats? Well, I first, I first got uh, interested in communism at school because you, you much younger than me, but when I was at school, uh, we were taught about the really horrible things. And one of those horrible things in life is communism. Now, that mm. didn't make sense to me because why is it that uh, many hundreds of millions of people live in the then second world or communist world. And of course, if it's that bad, they would have done something about it. And they eventually they did do something about it, but, but, but I'm sure it couldn't be that bad. I mean, it just, it, it, it can't be. Um, and that's why, that's how I got uh, interested in, communis in uh, communism initially, because people said it was bad, but they couldn't tell me why. Uh, and then eventually, when I got the opportunity, I started writing to the Patrice Lubuma University in Moscow, and they actually wrote back, and that was during apartheid. And I also remember, when I did my honors degree, I, uh, I chose communism as a subject. And they asked me funny questions why I wanted to study communism, and I said, because I wanted to find out what it is about. And I can remember when, he, when, he, when I took out books at the library, I did that while I was, I was doing it through UNISA, I had to go and sign, uh, I had to get special permission before I could get books like, for example, Das Kapital or books from Sarafra or, or Mao and Lenin and all that. And uh, because those, those books were banned in South Africa. So I had to get special permission. And I studied communism and eventually I found out that there's a, Karl Marx was a seriously, seriously clever guy. He was wrong, but he was very clever. And uh, misunderstood. And many instances pretty much misunderstood, but people don't... Misinterpreted, but, maybe that's a better word. Yeah, yeah, well, let me give you a very good example of how Karl Marx was misinterpreted and how the South African Communist, Communist Party mis, misunderstand Karl Marx. Karl Marx believed in the decentralization of power. Uh, the word Soviet is an old Russian word that means local authority, or let's call it city council, if you like. That's the closest word in English, I guess, mm. to the word Soviet. And the Soviet Union, the idea with the name Soviet Union was that the power should be with the people or as close as possible to the people. But when Lenin took over, and this is one of the differences between Marxism and Leninism, when Lenin took over, he said no. He wrote an essay, Vladimir Ilyanov, or we know him as Lenin, he wrote an essay, What is to be done? Uh, and in that essay, he says... That people, especially, do not use these words, but words, but essentially what he said is that people are stupid. People do not know anything about economics and politics. 
Uh, we have to centralize the power and teach people about economics and politics, and only later can we give the power back to the people or then to the Soviet. But in the meantime, we have to centralize power. And that's what Leninism, Leninism is. It's the centralization of power under a strong leader, and that is uh, the, the version of communism that the South African Communist Party understands. Uh, and that's, that's, there's one difference, yes. So, but of course, there are many other examples of many big mistakes that Karl Marx did. One major mistake was his so-called labor value theory. Essentially, what it says is that only labor can create wealth. But that was another big mistake mm -hmm. of Karl Marx. But the big difference between him and Lenin is this idea of the centralization or not of power. So, I mean, you spoke about we're in deep trouble. And I sense, I sense that possibly not just South Africa or Africa, the whole world's in a bit of trouble and it's been brewing for a couple of years now. Um, and, and, there's, and there's things that come to mind that are challenging my thinking a little bit. And you say that economists are taught the wrong thing. And, and I almost get that sense after doing some exercises and, and knowing what the human body can do that maybe – all academia is maybe teaching limitations as opposed to what I think we're seeing constantly. We had a guy called Brett Archibald. I don't know if you heard of Brett. He was, he, he was a survivor. He fell off a boat 100 miles out to sea and he survived for 28 hours. And even oh, Tim Noakes said he, he should have only survived for 15 hours in all things in the situation, but he survived for 28 and a half hours. And he tried to actually kill himself like eight times. And he couldn't. <laughs> he kept on bobbing up again. So he tried to drown himself. And, and, and you look at something like the oil price, futures price, it's unheard of. Those things haven't happened before. You've got negative interest rates in Japan um, yeah. and Scandinavia. I mean, it, it is not the world being turned upside down as well as South Africa? Or are we in more of a, a sweet spot of trouble? Yeah, you're asking two things here. I think the one thing that you're asking is about the technical question about the economy. And yes, that's a very valid question that we've got. We are in totally uncharted waters. Uh, monetary policy, that's what central banks are doing internationally. They're doing really weird things. They've got short-term interest rates at zero or below zero, as you've mentioned. Central banks are also printing money out of nothing because they can. That's a kind of money that we have nowadays. It's called fiat money, but they're making money out of nothing and they use this money to buy government debt instruments. So essentially they're funding governments by printing money. And in the process, they're forcing long-term interest rates to zero or below zero as well. So that's what central banks are doing. And I can tell you, when I was at university, we didn't even consider this. This was not part of, of what monetary policy entails. Monetary policy, when I was at university, has only got one thing in mind, and that's to keep in, uh, inflation low. And today, what monetary policy is trying to do, do is trying to get inflation up, especially the, the international guys, not necessarily in South Africa. That's one thing that's completely out of what they've taught me at university. A second thing is, is that government debt levels internationally, not only government debt levels, uh, but... but uh, the, the influence of politicians and bureaucrats that they have over economies and over us as people is significantly more than what I was taught what the free market is supposed to be looking like. Uh, and I, I can tell you, it, it's not going to go on like that. It's, we'll have, it will have to come to an end. And I think the end, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be quite painful. So that's some of the technical issues as far 
as the economy is concerned. Mm. But something non-technical, and I think that's very much applicable to South Africa, we also have government debt levels are at the record high levels. It's completely and totally unsustainable. And by the way, that's actually my expertise, and that's the fiscal policy. And we have monetary policy in South Africa relatively low. And recently, the South African Reserve Bank even indicated that they're going, also going to buy government debt instruments, especially in the secondary market. And we could talk about that if you want to. But, but mm. what makes South Africa different from many other countries in the world is, I believe that we've got a massive trust deficit in South Africa. And that's nothing to do with the technical part of the economy. That's simply got to do with confidence and trust in your political leadership. And we don't have that. People just don't trust the government. They don't, have, they don't see really a, much of a future in South Africa, and there are very good reasons for that. If you look at the way that ESCOM was mismanaged, South African Airways was mismanaged, look at the local authorities, just look at South Africa. South Africa is a mess, and people don't have confidence in South Africa, and if you don't have confidence, and it doesn't matter what the economic numbers tell you, if you don't have confidence, then the economy will not perform. So I think there are the, those are the two aspects to the economy. The one is the technical issues like various policies, and the other one simply has to do whether people's got trust in your economy. And unfortunately, in both instances, in terms of the technical issues in South Africa or the technical aggregates, as well as the trust deficit in South Africa, we're scoring really, really bad. And the inevitable result of that will be an economy that, that underperforms. And it's not about rant in sense. I've done some calculations, especially now with this lockdown and all that. I think more people in South Africa are going to die because of an increase in poverty than people are going to die because of the, the virus. And remember, poverty is the biggest killer in the world. Poverty doesn't mean people necessarily dying of hunger. Poverty also means that people don't get proper education, that the ambulance don't get you in time, uh, that, that uh, they don't have proper infrastructure. Pro po uh, poverty is the biggest killer. It kills more people than all those other bad things put together. But I think there seems to be this like rhetoric, political rhetoric that's coming out, this socialistic thinking. And when I was listening to a Netflix series, even was it, um, Barack Obama, and he was saying, you know, things have got to equalize themselves and, you know, society needs to be taken clearly. And then, you know, um, you got sites people being quite vocal and saying things have got to change. We've got to, you know, open South Africa up for business. And who was it? Gareth Cliff got sort of, yeah, had a, had a real hiding from society in a way. Who do you represent? And you're not really looking after our interests. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Because there seems to be a very clear, like, I wouldn't say anti-business, but not an appreciation for the role of business. Yeah. I think it's wrong to, to refer to business and the people or to refer, and that's why people make a mistake and that's why we, why I say the economy is about people. It's nothing else. It is only about people. But we organize ourselves in, 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 uh, in, in, certain, in certain ways. Yes, like, for example, mm. in certain groups, yes, but a company, I don't believe a company really exists. A company is simply a group of individuals that came together and said, listen, we're going to do something together and we are going to do it in terms of the following rules. So those, it's, a company is not something distant or divorced from the rest of us. It is us. The same with the markets. It is us. The same for the country, for that matter. A country is nothing but a group of individuals deciding that we're going to call this area South Africa. And if we decide... That from tomorrow we're going to call it 
North South Africa and South South Africa, then that's what it's going to be called. And it happens all the time. Three years, four years ago, there was one country called Sudan, and today there are two countries, Sudan and South Sudan, for example. So everything has to do with people. But the big difference, I believe, uh, between these two extreme ideologies, and quite often these ideologies are referred to as communism and capitalism. I don't like those words, by the way, especially not capitalism. I don't like the word capitalism. But I think... Uh, freedom. 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 That's what I, yeah. And I, I know some people will call it libertarianism, perhaps, or a liberal ideology or new liberal ideology. There are so many different words for this. But I, I believe that the default, hmm, can I call it ideology, or the default yeah. law, let's call it natural law, for humans mm-hmm. is, is the ideology of freedom. That simply means that as an individual, I have the right to do whatever I want to, I have complete and total freedom, but there's only one rule that I have to obey, and that is that I cannot make the life for other people, can't make the other people's life difficult. That I have to treat other people the same way I want to be treated. And if you want to zoom into it, there are only two things that really are important. And the one is my right to life, and the other one is my right on my property. My right to life also means that I can sell my property or I can sell my property and I can sell my labor and I can move around and I can marry whoever I want to get married to and I can join any organization and I can do whatever I want to, provided I do not interfere uh, with somebody else's life. That's the only rule. Well, if you compare that to, let's call it the left ideologies or call it communism or socialism or whatever you want to, they, their approach to economics or to life is different. They believe that there should be a limitation on how much property I can own. They believe there should be a rule on at what price I'm allowed to sell my, my labor, as an example. They believe there should be other rules, like politicians can tell me whether I can smoke or not. They, if politicians should even tell me uh, things like, and we had rules like that, who I can get married to or not. That is, that is where politicians or the government or whatever you want to call it, how they prescribe to other people how to lead their lives. I don't believe they've got the right to do that. And I also believe that people are inherently good. I believe in freedom. I believe I've got my own company. We run the company. We try to be, um, uh, uh, we try to make money in the company. But we're also involved in all sorts of charities, not because we have to, but because we are people. People do that. I assist my neighbors and they help me. That's what people do. I believe people are good, but I also believe that you need give people freedom. And that's, that's the ideology I believe in. Now, if you want to give it a good name, if you want to call it libertarianism or new liberalism, you can call it that, but I prefer to call it freedom. So I've got two that I'll probably call it. And one is abundance that equals freedom. And the other one equals scarcity, which is limitation, socialism, communism. It's, you get scarcity of different things. You also get surpluses. Now, uh, if we have time, I would like to tell you a story that illustrates these two ideologies very well. Um, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, let me just give you the background. In the Soviet Union, you had committees for everything. Uh, and, and those committees were mostly staffed or manned by, by, by economists. Now, imagine a bunch of economists deciding how to run things. But anyway, so they had all sort of committees, starting at the Soviet, by the way, and these economists then will decide how to allocate resources. So they will tell a factory, we will give you so much 
coal and so much electricity, you will get so many workers and so much rubber, and you have to go and produce tractors, as an example. Or a farmer, you will get so much fertilizer and so much water and so much land, you must produce X. And that's literally how it worked. The problem with the Soviet system is, and I'm not even referring to the, in, to the inefficiency of the system, but the problem with people, and especially economists, is that quite often they get it wrong, and they give too little resources to the factory. And that's why in the old Soviet Union, there were usually shortages of things. There was a shortage of bread or whatever. And that's why when you talk about the Soviet Union, people quite often, when you talk about the Soviet Union, people think of queues, standing in queues. My wife told me this. When there's a sweets or something in the shops, go and stand in a queue and hope you can get something. But sometimes economists make the, the, the opposite mistake and sometimes they allocate too much resources. Now, there was, a, there was a, in a city with the name of Tomsk, there was a titanium factory. And one year they, they allocated by accident too much resources to the titanium factory and too much titanium was produced. And they couldn't sell it because prices are fixed in the Soviet Union. So the, the, you, the, all prices were exactly the same right through the whole Soviet Union. doesn't matter where you were. Bread, bread and milk and titanium, everything at exactly the same price. doesn't matter where you are in the Soviet Union. And it turned out that people started using titanium to build the roofs of their houses in the city called Tomsk because there was this huge surplus of titanium that they couldn't get rid of. Now, after... <laughs> now, after... That's going to lead to a couple of problems, right? Now, now listen to this. This is the interesting part. So, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a bunch of economists in the old Soviet Union were invited to go to the fresh produce market in London to see how this monster called capitalism, how it works. And they were duly impressed because there's all the stuff coming in and out and people are shouting and screaming. And I mean, things move around. It is really, really impressive. I don't know if you've ever been there, but or go to the, the, the flower market in Amsterdam. It's mm. equally impressive. And, uh, and they were seriously impressed. And at the end of the tour, the tour guide asked them, so what, what do you think? They said, this is really, really amazing. They didn't think that this thing called capitalism can work as well and all the stuff going around. But they've got one question. There's one thing that they simply cannot understand. And the question is, where are the surpluses? Now think a little bit about that. And that's exactly the difference between a free market system and a centrally controlled system. In a centrally controlled system, politicians decide what to manufacture. And quite often there are shortages. But because you can't see shortages, well, it's not there. You can't see it. You don't notice it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes mm -hmm. they overproduce something. And then you see the surpluses, and you can't get wrong with get away with the surpluses because it's there. You don't have a mechanism to get rid of the surpluses because prices are fixed. But in a free market system, prices go up and down all the time. And whenever there's a shortage, we produce more. And if there's a surplus, we, we prices fall and we start selling it, and whatever the case may be. We don't have shortages and surpluses, we just have enough in a free market system because the market always comes well to the market, unlike the, the, the centrally controlled system. And that's the basic difference. In the one instance, in the free market system, is that we allow people to continuously adjust to whatever the requirements are. In the Soviet system, we've got a bunch of bureaucrats making these decisions, and they always get it wrong. And that's why they're quite, usually shortages, but sometimes surpluses as well. Where are the surpluses? Was the question. And also, they don't, they're not responsive to the needs in those different areas. So, I... <clears throat> I, I grew up a little bit in the UK, and one of the things that I think I've realized is there's a lot of people who have created a lot of wealth around property. And one of the things I also noticed 
with that is that the interest rates are really low. I think it's virtually zero at the moment. Yeah. But before they were a little bit higher, they used to have interest-only loans. And I think there's about 300-odd mortgage companies that offer a very competitive market. And I think that the UK property market it's quite attractive. And I, and I often looked at that. And I thought, well, how do you, how do we create wealth and how do we create a sense of ownership in South Africa? And, and my sense was that number one, our interest rates are too high to do that. You know, you look at someone like Warren Buffett, compound interest um, is the seventh wonder of the world, but, but it can also be the biggest detriment or, you know, uh, yeah, um, if, it, if it's used incorrectly. Mm. And so how do we give, people in South Africa, a sense of ownership, because I think owning property, it does something yeah. for people, but there's no way that we can expect them to own property with the high cost of borrowing that we have. So my thinking was, how do we drive down interest? And that's obviously happened in the last couple of months. We've seen a, a massive yeah. drive to a, a far reduced rate, not nearly as, as well as the rest of the world, but still significant and good. And, and I understand it there's other issues at play, but, but isn't that something that's going to drive a different sense of, what are you thinking? Yeah. Well, I think you touch on so many things here and some of them are a little bit technical. So if I can make a few comments. <laughs> uh, well, well, I look at the, I look at you're an economist for the reserve bank and I know that it's not the banks that are making these decisions. It's, it's someone within bank. the Reserve Bank. It's a central okay. bank that's deciding. And I know that they're making these decisions based on GDP growth and, like you said, inflation. And I look yeah. at someone like the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and she's put in different indicators there. She's saying, we're not interested in GDP growth. We're looking at our, our, our countries, um, how healthy they are. And so yes, they're exactly. looking at different ways of yes. measuring Yes. you know, lead or lag indicators. Yes. Well, okay, well, there's a very, there's, I've got a friend, she's a professor in economics at one of the universities. She's an expert on happiness. And uh, she measures happiness. And, you, and it's, uh, maybe that's a measure that we should use, happiness. But, you know, um, if there's one thing that, that correlates with everything that I think is good, uh, that one thing is called wealth. Wealth correlates with Life expectancy, good education, everything. While poverty correlates with just about everything that is bad, with crime and low health, uh, bad health and low, bad education and bad infrastructure and all of that. But I think uh, one of the things that you touched on is private property rights. Yes, absolutely. I think that is absolutely sacrosanct. And I said earlier that there are two things that are important, my life and my property. And it's the job of the state to look after my life and to look after my property. It's my property. Private property right is of the utmost importance. And yes, uh, but private property also includes my right to sell my, my labor, as an example. But uh, and uh, So what can we do to encourage people to, to own more things? And not necessarily property. I'm not a great fan of property, in fact. And one reason why is because property doesn't generate an income necessarily. And that's part of the reason why I don't like gold also, because a piece of gold is still a piece of gold. A land is only valuable if you can do something with that, if you can produce something on it from an economic point of view. Of course, it could be valuable in the sense that I want to go and have a nice holiday there and take nice family pictures. So there's certainly that kind of value in there as well. But more importantly is 
private property rights, generally speaking, and people should be allowed, and their property rights should be protected. And you can only have property uh, if you have an economy that produces stuff, uh, and everybody must participate in this machine that we call the economy, and private property rights must be protected. And whether you own a, a, a TV or a piece of land or a big farm or a, ca a castle, it doesn't matter. Whatever it's yours is yours and must be protected. Your comment about interest rates, that's an interesting one. Remember, interest rate got two sides. The one is the, the, the price that I pay to borrow money, and the mm. other one is the, the return that I get from saving money. And mm. if the Reserve Bank decides to cut interest rates, then, of course, I am going to buy my mortgage payments going to go down, but my mm. grandmother that is dependent on interest income, she's also going to get less. And it's usually the elderly that are affected. So that's important. Keep that in mind. It's, 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 it's this, an, another Can I add something? Rates. Yes, sure. We've got a young population, so we don't have a lot of old people. So well, the, the, ben the beneficial party will be the young people then, if, if we're trying to overcome the challenges. Every yeah. rand that is borrowed is also saved by somebody. In fact, our savings are far too low in South Africa. We don't save nearly enough. Okay. That's, that's a big problem in South Africa. And that's part of the reason why interest rates are relatively high. Because that's the market's way of saying, telling us that we need to save more. Unlike countries like, for example, the Japanese. They save a lot. And that's why interest rates are so low there. Also okay. keep in mind that inflation is relatively high in South Africa. So, and that's why interest rates must be higher than inflation for various reasons. And until we get inflation to much lower levels, we simply cannot afford it to lower interest rates but to buy much. And maybe a last comment about interest rates that is also important. Um, and I don't want to get too technical, but there are many different interest rates in the economy. You get the repo rate at which the Reserve Bank or Central Bank lends money mm. to the banks. And then you get the prime rate and you get money market rates and all sorts of interest rates. And you also get capital market interest rates. And that's usually slightly longer term interest rates. Now, if I have a choice as an investor, then I can choose either to invest in a new company or I can simply put my money in a capital market. Um, then, of course, I'm going to go to the highest return, of course, adjusted for, for risk. And in a weird way, interest rates in your economy also tells you what your potential economic growth is going forward. So if the Japanese interest rates is at zero or below zero, it's the market's mm -hmm. way of telling you that their future economic growth is also going to be at zero or below zero. So it's a compliment. It is in a way, in a weird way. Our interest rates in South Africa is relatively high. Because of inflation, there are many bad reasons why it's high. And because of mm -hmm. weak economic growth and so on. But at least it tells us also that we have growth potential more than many other countries in the world. Wow. That's interesting. So, I mean... I, I saw one of your talks the other day, and, and I think it was sobering, maybe as an understatement, around the future, and you mentioned the trust in our government, but you also talked around some of the opportunities for opportunists and organisations, and, and so we do know that the interest rates are high because the capital markets give a better return. We see that, right? I mean, we're seeing that over the last 100 years, South African organizations have generally given a better return on investment than maybe other countries. And, and you're mentioning Japan and those sorts of things. And it looks like we, we're going into a bit of a shitstorm. 
coming up now. What what what's your advice to South African businesses? Let me make a make me make a statement, uh, and then I'm, I'll see if I can answer the question. And the statement is: one of the best things that can happen to an economy is for people to lose their jobs and for businesses to go bankrupt. It is a good thing. It's a very good thing if a business goes bankrupt because it tells you that the capital that was employed in that specific business wasn't employed very efficiently and by liquidating the business... Sorry? Or productively, which we... Because exactly, whatever it well. is, it wasn't well used. It wasn't well used. <clears throat> yeah. So by liquidating that business, you take the capital, which is a scarce commodity in the economy, capital, and you give it to somebody mm -hmm. else to, to have a go trying to use that capital to start a new business. The point I want to make is that the wonderful thing about the free market system or free system is that there's a continuous change taking place. Businesses going bankrupt, but very importantly, new businesses being created as well. And in the process, mm -hmm. people lose their jobs, but new kind of jobs and new jobs are created as well. So the important point here is that a healthy economy is an economy that continuously destroy new jobs or destroy jobs and businesses, but also continuously create new jobs and new businesses. It's a process, and that's healthy. It should be like that. It goes along with a lot of pain, especially to people that lose their jobs. Uh, but with a bit of luck, you will be able to find a job somewhere else. That's not the case in South Africa. In the case of South Africa, uh, it's, it's difficult to fire people. And it's, it's also very, very difficult to start a business in South Africa and for various reasons. So we don't have this process of creative distraction in the South African economy, which is really unfortunate. I think something else that we also have to understand is that sometimes these changes, it's normal for, for, for economies to destroy and create, but sometimes these changes happen suddenly. And there are many examples of that. And what we're currently experiencing is one of those sudden events where a lot of businesses will be destroyed, many millions of jobs will be destroyed as well. Unfortunately, it is unlikely that we're going to create new jobs as well and new businesses as well. But they will be. They will be winners, even in this chaos in which we find ourselves at the moment. There will be new opportunities. And I think that is the, the, the silver lining, is that we're going through the normal changes will be compressed into a short period of time. There will be, as always, be a lot of pain, but there certainly will be opportunities. And it's for the, for the clever, the shrewd investor and businessman and entrepreneur now to find those opportunities and to capitalize on those opportunities to, and to establish a business and wait for the upswing to happen, and then you're going to have a new business. Unfortunately, the government that we have in South Africa doesn't see it that way. They don't understand that in order to create something new, sometimes you have to destroy something old. They want to keep something old and old-fashioned, and like, for example, South African <laughs> Airways. They want to keep that alive incorrectly. They also believe that jobs should be created. Which is wrong. Jobs should never, ever be created. Jobs is something that happens. It's a result of another process, and that process is wealth creation. When wealth creation happens... Jobs happen as well. You can't really create jobs sustainably. Uh, jobs can only happen once something else happens. And that's why it's so wrong for the politicians to say, listen, I want to keep jobs. I want to save jobs. That's the completely wrong approach. The right approach must be, I want to create an environment 
where the magic of individual freedom and of a free market can take hold and create wealth. And in the process, we will also create jobs and everything that go with that. I think there's a sense that certainly a lot of people I speak to who move to the continent or travel is that for some reason South Africa doesn't have the same level of entrepreneurial spirit as the rest of the continent. And it's very, very active there. And they feel this energy of young people creating ideas and whatever. And I actually felt the same sort of way. I I don't feel there's that same electricity here. And I was trying to wonder what is it? Is it a culture thing? Is it that we need to start earlier on? Is it a, a, you know, an institutional government scenario? When I go to the East, like Indonesia, I find that it's really vibrant and every single person, every family selling something, if it's petrol or something by the side of the street, they're trading all the time. And so is that that a mindset? I mean, you you get North Africans coming to South Africa and yet they're able to set up shops and trade and and work and, and, you know, I suppose you had Indians coming to South Africa as well and Durban setting up businesses as well. So, you know, is it a culture thing? I wonder is what it, it is. Uh, yes, I don't know what it is, but we, let, we can speculate about that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I've read many reports about foreigners coming to South Africa, the unemployment level. Uh, apparently, there's quite a large community of Ethiopians in, in Port Elizabeth. Mm. And um, okay. the, the, the unemployment level amongst them is just about zero. Yet they are not unemployed. They make a plan somewhere. While at the same time, the unemployment level in, in Port Elizabeth amongst South Africans are much, much, much higher. Why is that so? I don't know what the answer is to that. I guess there could be a cultural reason for that. I guess there could be so many other reasons for that. But uh, one reason that I think, or something that can be blamed because of this, is has to do with our government and our government and the ideology of our government. Our government uh, keep keep on telling us that you have the right uh, to to get some grant. And by the way, it seems as as if we're going to get a basic income grant in South Africa now as well. So you've, you've got all these grants and things, uh, it's, it, I think it's a culture of entitlement and government keeps on feeding that culture of entitlement. But the day is going to come, I promise you, and we, we're there now, when the state will and the state finances will collapse to such an extent that the state simply cannot be everything to everybody anymore. We're there now. And eventually, and I believe South Africans also have that entrepreneurial spirit, and now you will have to fall back on your entrepreneurial spirit because you won't, you won't have Big Brother looking after you anymore because of the state of the state's finances in South Africa. Uh, but I want to blame much for the South African government as well. And one thing that I want to blame them for is the, is, is the quality of South Africa's education. So we oh. spend more on education than most countries in the world, but the quality is really, really horrible. It's the it's highest. It's the worst in the world. I think it was two years ago, it was the highest per capita we spent yeah, well, on education with the worst, with the worst yeah. productivity, it's, with the worst outcomes. So we have the highest income, input with the worst output. Yeah, that's definitely the case. So the, what we put in, what we, get, what we get out for the taxpayer in South Africa yeah. is a very, very bad investment. The returns that we get on this investment. Um, and by the way, the most important education in, in any country, or the most important education for any individual always is grade one. Grade one is by far the most important here. Never ever will you take such a leap in the accumulation of, of, of knowledge than in grade one. Uh, it's far, you learn far more in grade one than you're going to learn in your final year in doing a PhD in chemical engineering, as an example. Grade one is the most important. And see what is happening now. We put all this emphasis on free 
um, university education, blah, blah, blah. But in the meantime, the quality of our great ones is horrible. That's where we've got to start. We've got to start. I guess that's another reason. So, yes, I guess some an, an entitlement. I, we, education. I did a podcast with... I did a podcast with Ian Williamson, and he—I mean—they spend a lot on education. And I said, "What did you, what did you get out of it?" He said, "Well, we just focused on matrics, and we just focused on the worst performing schools in South Africa. There are four provinces. Yeah. Some had zero percent pass rate, and all we did was we focused on the leadership, normally the principal, and we were able to double, on average, double the pass rate of those kids sure. by just focusing on the leadership." So you talk about the government, that's the leadership of the country. Exactly. And so they were able to get some schools from zero pass rate to 100% pass rate. So that I think, but you've also mentioned that out of this challenge that we have with our, our government, we have corporate stepping in, but we also have new entrants, the curators of the world, all these new solutions, uh, educational companies coming and resolving things that government should be doing. Yeah, and I think that is what you what you mentioning now. That's one of the big winners. That's something that I've learned, and I told you earlier that I've become a grade one teacher now as well. Not a good one, but I've become a grade one teacher. <laughs> and and I'm amazed to see all everything that can be done online. And I think that is what that's mm -hmm. that's going to be an industry that's going to win big time. Uh, and what we need, and this is part of government's responsibility. I don't think government should be responsible for many things, but at least I think in this case, what government should be responsible for is to create an environment to allow the private sector to connect everybody. Everybody must be connected in South Africa with cheap broadband. You must have cheap access to the internet because that's the future of education. In future, I think education is going to change quite dramatically, and there are many, many business opportunities as well. So, yes, so, so maybe that's what the crisis, that's going to be the benefit of this crisis, is that they, it will force South Africa into the fourth industrial revolution, which will include high-quality education probably in the, on the internet. And you're right. I think the internet, digital, what we're seeing is the value of those companies. But I saw now Google's partnering with, I think, Vodacom to do the balloons for the connectivity. Uh -huh. And then you've got Facebook getting a whole undersea throughout Africa. So you got, I think there's going to be this massive shift, hopefully soon, because my connectivity yes. with my three children studying is ridiculous. But um, this big shift. I mean, I'm always intrigued. You, you went through some very deep personal challenges a couple of years ago that um, I remember it was – I think it was last year, that I read your post. It was maybe a little bit later than when it happened, a year or so later. And it was winter and it was dark and it was raining. My wife and I sat in bed probably way too late you know, on the weekend and we read the tragedy that happened. But then we saw your optimism for this country. And I think, you know, I've got a brother who's sort of moved to the UK and I've got friends who are, you know, always looking. I mean, is the future elsewhere? Is it here? Is it the rest of Africa? What is, what is your sense? Not from a personal and economic. Yeah. Are we are we forced to invest overseas more than locally? Is that where the returns are best? What, you know, I look at yeah. Woolworths. They've gone overseas. You've got the bid, they've all gone overseas. They they all saw things happening and they all moved and bought operations overseas. But they've all floundered. And it looks like today we're going to have to put in a billion rand to the Australian unit. Yeah, know, not all of them. So, so, and Nando yeah. was a success. Nando's was a success. All right. But, you know, you touched on a couple of really important things there. Um, and maybe if we try to put on my boring economist hat, 
on for a moment. <laughs> uh, and that is, if you, if you analyze economies, if you analyze economies, we economists, we categorize certain activities into primary and secondary and tertiary sectors. Now, the primary yeah. sectors are typically, for example, many, uh, things like, for example, agriculture and mining. The secondary sectors are manufacturing. That's a good example. And the tertiary sectors are primarily the service industries, that, uh, the lawyers and teachers, but also other things like, for example, IT and banking and Meaning. tourism and that sort of stuff. That's the, and, and also included in the tertiary sectors is what we call, let's call it the fourth industrial revolution kind of things. Like, for example, mm -hmm. Google and the Microsofts of this world, they, they are typically uh, digital uh, service industries in the, in the tertiary sectors in your economy. And if you stand back almost, a little almost bit... Almost utilities. In a, in, in a way, yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good <laughs> comparison. In a way, that it is utilities. But the difference, is, the difference is they are services, and very importantly, they are digital. That's very important because some, some, service, some sectors in the tertiary sector, sub-sectors like, for example, uh, tourism is taking a huge knock now. But some other sub-sectors like, for example, Google is doing really wonderful now. Um, so the, and if you analyze economies, you will find that the rich world, that's where they operate, in the tertiary sector, especially in the digital part of the tertiary sector, while the poor countries, they are primarily in the, in the primary sectors like, for example, agriculture and mining and that sort of stuff. And the in-between countries, like, for example, the Chinese, they in manufacturing. And we all want to become wealthy, and that means we want to move up into the, into the ranks, into the tertiary sectors, especially the digitized part. Now, coming back to your question, should we stay in South Africa or should we go away, for example? And the answer of that is that's the wrong question. Because it doesn't matter where you live, uh, because of the nature of the modern economy and the direction in which we are moving in, I can sit anywhere in the world, and I can still write my articles, and I can send it to anywhere in the world, and it will still be there. I can still, I can be anywhere in the world, and I can have a meeting with my with my clients or with my people through Zoom or whatever the case might be, and I can be just as productive uh, sitting in London or in New York or here in Pretoria, as long as I have a connection. Firstly, and secondly, the know-how on how to use that, and I think that is actually the answer. It doesn't matter where you are, it matters on whether you can participate and in wherever the economy is taking you at the moment. And it's very clear that the future of economics will be service-orientated, it will be part of the digital world. That means that you have to have the necessary skills and, very importantly, you have to have a connection. So connectivity is going to be important. And security yes. to make sure your connection is safe as well. So, yes, of course, and, the normal stuff, I mean, you have to be physically safe, you have to have access to a hospital and that sort of stuff. But, but that's the nature of it. So if you want to talk about the economic future of South Africa, talk about whether we are connected. And it doesn't matter where you are. You can apply your trade or do your thing anywhere in the world as long as you've got connection in the know-how to do that. So I think one of the things that we try and do is we try and look at pockets of the excellence from different sectors, so from startups to corporates, even the public sector and academia. And I think we do that through our awards and our programs. And really we're trying to say, where will people want to put their time, effort or energy, right? And who's doing it well and how do we share those best practices? Are you seeing any evidence that um, measurements of success is changing over time? How do we measure top companies? 
the ones that we should be investing in. Are you seeing any measurements or evidence that that's changing? Yes, I, I, I think I see that. And an interesting thing is, is I think it's changing over time as well. <clears throat> Maybe what I mean by that is that the measurement of success in a free market system inevitably is, is how much money you're making. Because that is an objective, objective measure of success. I've made a lot of money, and therefore I'm successful. Remember, if I can succeed in making a lot of money, it must also mean that I am a very good servant to the people. Because that's how you make money, by servicing people. Mm. So successful people, wealthy people, are very good servants. But I, I see a change to that. And nowadays I found find more and more wealthy people getting involved in all sort of pro projects where they use their wealth for the benefit of other people. A very good example is Bill Gates, uh, where he uses his money with all sort of schemes. Uh, the research on malaria is a good example, but recently he's been putting a lot of money into the COVID research as well. So that's a very good example. And philanthropy, philanthropy is becoming more and more uh, important today. In fact, I'm involved with my business in, with another business called the family office. Now, a family office, what they typically do, they look after the money of very, very rich people. When I'm talking about very rich people, I talk about five billion plus kind of uh, money that we're talking about per family. That's very, very well. So, so this, this, this family office look after the, not only the money, but look after the affairs of very, very rich people. And one of the things that they look after is how to give money away. And it's become a science, how to give money away and who to give the money to. Because rich people want to give their money, but quite often they don't know who to give it to and how to give it to. And to make sure that it doesn't lead to all sort of unintended consequences. Because there are many. If you give money away in the wrong manner, if you give money to a dictator, for example, he's simply going to use, misuse the money to... Uh, against his people and not for his people as an example. So that's what I'm seeing is that although money is the measure of success in a free world, what is becoming more apparent is that rich people are getting more involved in all sorts of charities to make, to use their wealth uh, for the benefit of other people as well. So, so like ESG initiatives really, environmental, social and sort of governance as well as financial you know, indicators. You know, you know, uh, I've read some research is that the private sector was far more involved in charities 100 years ago than now. And there's some yeah. research uh, suggesting that as governments are getting bigger and as governments are trying to take over all these social security responsibilities, that the private sector is withdrawing from that. Because government is doing it. Why should I be doing it now? Uh, and I'm pretty sure that if we, government stopped providing these various grants and that the private sector will step in and provide. And in fact, that's exactly what we're seeing today in South Africa, isn't it? So how many mm, private mm, sector organizations, parcels. all of a sudden, they're there. Nobody asked them. They're there and they're organizing. They're getting, they really got, literally going on the streets and give people, and they're doing it in an organized manner. And I can promise you they're doing it far more efficiently than the government will ever be able to do it. So, so that's our benefit. It's actually maybe taking away those those things from from government. And also, I, th I was thinking about that fam family office. I was thinking that if they've got $5 billion, that I think one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing with startups, and you talk about, you know, stop focusing on jobs. 
but yes. the, you know, for me, I don't know if I read it in your book, but but I, I sort of blame you a little bit in some of my thinking. But is it that we need to not be trying to get a million jobs, but get trying to create a million entrepreneurs? Um, yeah. Certainly, being something I've been saying for a while. And how do you do that? So they need networks, knowledge, but also funding. And you talk about the red tape, and and I think that's fairly obvious. But how do we make access to funding easier? It's obvious the government doesn't have the resources at the moment to to really get that economy thrive. Or do they? Can they tap into no. more funding for businesses? No. <laughs> no, 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 certainly not. And I can tell you, I do this all the time. I, I look at government finances, and we are in very, very deep trouble. The state is... They've, they've messed up the state's finances to such an extent that we are so deep in trouble. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Uh, now, how, what can we do? Well, I believe that the, the energy is with the private sector. I believe that you have to free up the private sector and say, listen, uh, for example, we know, we've been talking about it, that the schooling in South Africa is a disaster. But my kids, and this is because I can afford it, I guess, and, mm. and, but my kids, I mean, they haven't missed a single day of school during this, this uh, lockdown. And I'm, I'm the teacher, a very bad one, but at least I've got a teacher and I've got access to a computer and I've got a program that the, the, the school sends me all the time and they tell me, go to do this, A, B, and C, and so on. And, and my, at least I'm trying to assist my kids. But poor people somewhere, they don't have that. But imagine now, if the state says, listen, we're going to give children a voucher uh, to go and pick mm. their own school. I'm, I'm very sure that they will use this voucher to go to a private school to give them access uh, to also this online kind of teaching that my kids have at the moment. So there is an obvious example. The, the private sector is simply just so much better in providing even things like, for example, education than the state can. And that's part of the reason why I certainly advocate the, the, the privatization of education in South Africa. The state can still fund it, but you can fund it by way of vouchers, as an example, and get the private sector to do that because the private sector is just better at doing it in the end. And in the end, it will, it will be the poor that benefit from, from being you, better education. If we're going to change the, the government's thinking, because I think that's what it comes down to their mindset and their ideologies, is that, is that get business getting closer with academia and entrepreneurs to government. Is that what's necessary? What, I mean, we don't want these big disasters to create these situations, but have you seen any other mechanisms that have created an enabling environment? Because we have to, you know, we've got this ecosystem, we have to work together to make it work better. Um, yeah. yeah, my sense is two things are happening here. Is that government is... Of course, the government is, is really, our, we've got an exceptionally destructive government. They've done so much horrible damage to this economy. And I can give you a long list of things. I just don't make a comment like this without having very good reason for saying that. But they're they moving even more, let's call it to the left, or becoming even more interventionist. And they're going to do even more damage over time. And you, you can get it from from just listening to our political leaders all the time. Look at Praveen Gordon, for example. I mean, when will he learn his lesson about South African Airways? I mean, I, I just can't understand that. And we hear things like, for example, radical economic transformation, and I believe that means more state interference. And we're talking about uh, redistribution even more, and that means more taxes and things. So I think, I think two things are happening. The one is that the state wants to become, the ideology 
of our government is to be, be more interventionist, and that's what they're going to do. Although they're not, not going to do it well because they're not very efficient and they need a lot of money and they will need to get the money from the private sector. So that's one trend that is happening. The other trend that is happening is that the private sector is simply starting to ignore the state. And there I can give you many examples. We've been talking about education. Private schools, when I was at school, private schools basically did not exist. It was really the total exception for the child to go to a private school because they were horribly expensive and it's only the really, the really fancy posh people that could send and afford their kids to go to a private school. Most, I don't know what the percentage was, but I'm pretty sure far more than 90% of children went uh, to, to state schools when I was at school. Today, I wonder what the percentage is, but private schools are far more important today than in the past. So what has happened, essentially, we have privatized education, and there was no drive from the politicians to do this. It happened naturally. Another example is that the state is supposed to provide policing. They're supposed to look after the war, law and order. Now, what has happened? We've privatized the police in South Africa because there are twice as many private security guards in South Africa than police. We've privatized the police. And the state, the politicians never intended to privatize the police, but that is what happened because they, the police... Yeah, we happen. We privatize the police. And that's what's going to happen. So the state is trying to, going to try to do more things. They're going to throw this wet blanket over the economy, try to do it more and more, called the state and state interference. But because of the incompetence of the state, that will actually create more and more opportunities because more things that the state is supposed to be doing will not be done, and that's where the opportunities are. And I think that is another silver lining. The future of South Africa lies in the, fi in the fact that the state is collapsing, and as the state is collapsing, it will create more and more opportunities for the private sector. Gradually and slowly, the state will simply bleed to death, and the private sector will simply bloom there where the state simply cannot uh, do what it is supposed to be doing uh, as a government. So basically look at what the state's meant to do and start businesses or look at services that complement to what exactly. they're meant to do. That's, that's what you're saying. That's advice to entrepreneurs out there, go and that look at what the government's doing. Don't complain about them. Thank them because that's a business opportunity waiting for you to, to get here's involved another, in. Here's another opportunity. They're going to try to revive South African Airways. They, again, not going to be successful. Go and start an airline. Because airlines, many of the private sector airlines are also going to get into deep trouble. But eventually we'll get out of the lock, lockdown. And there's an opportunity. So start an airline. South African Airways. We'll never fly again. They're going to try. It's not, not going to be successful. But there's the opportunity. Education. There's another one. A wonderful opportunity. Infrastructure. There's another one. All sort of infrastructural uh, things that can be done by the private sector because the state's simply collapsing. For sure. It was incredible to speak to you. Um, I think we're sort of over our time quite a bit. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time and insights and uh, making sense of my rambles So and, and setting me straight on a couple of economic issues. I think we've got some interesting time ahead and um, I think it's always good to get a different perspective on the fact that we, I think people say we've got opportunities, so it's always great to know where those opportunities lie. Um, and I think you've really done a, a great job of helping us with that. So thank you, Darby. It was a wonderful, wonderful pleasure. And it was very nice talking to you. Maybe one day 
we can do a triathlon together somewhere. Without a doubt, yeah. I'm um, uh, looking forward to it. It's, it's it's funny this triathlons thing, eh? Um, who, who would have thought I would have gone to Hawaii doing triathlons? But I think even even just having a, a nice beer or a coffee would be be great after lockdown. Maybe Monday <laughs> we get back to normal. Yeah, one day it's never going to be normal. It's going to, it will always change. It's going to be different, <laughs> but it's going to be exciting. I'm sure. It's going to be exciting. Thanks so much, and happy parenting and uh, teaching. Thank you, Ralph. All the best to you.